Hi everyone. It's such a privilege for me to be able to share God's Word with you in this way today. And whether you're a part of our Pinelands Baptist Church, or whether you're listening in some other part of the world entirely, I want you to know that I was thinking of you particularly as I prepared, and I am thinking of you now as I share God's Word with you. In our previous two sermons, we looked at a number of things that Peter said we are to keep in mind when we suffer. And today I wanted to come back to just two verses from last week's passage, verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3. I believe that they are extremely important for us as Peter brings two great themes together that can help us when we are suffering. As you know, suffering is one of the main themes in the book of 1 Peter. In chapter 1, Peter says that he writes to people who are suffering grief in all kinds of trials. And in the rest of the letter, we see a number of different areas in which Christians suffer. Peter speaks about distinctively Christian suffering. In other words, suffering particularly for being a Christian, whether that's being misunderstood being mocked for your Christian principles, or being imprisoned or even put to death. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the organization Open Doors lists 50 countries where you cannot be a Christian. I think I'll start sending the profiles of some of these countries on the WhatsApp group. The Maldives, for instance, are beautiful islands, but they rank number 13 on that list. Converting from Islam means forfeiting Maldivian citizenship, and owning a Bible is punishable by death. Suffering for being a Christian was the main theme of the passage that we considered last time, and of which these two verses form a part. But Peter also speaks about facing more general sufferings in a distinctively Christian way. And so, for example, he speaks about how, as a Christian, to face suffering in the workplace. How, as a Christian, to handle a marriage that may perhaps be less than ideal. He speaks about how, as a Christian, to face suffering that comes even from the people of God. And in the rest of the letter, he will cover the topics of how to face the suffering that comes from temptation, and even how to suffer as a Christian minister. So again, Peter addresses the suffering that we experience from living in a fallen world, as well as the more particular sufferings that result when we try and follow Jesus. And when we find ourselves in any of those situations, I think it's helpful to bear in mind the two themes that we find in verses 17 and 18. These two themes are set side by side in these verses, and both of them are extremely important for us. Let's have a look. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 17 and 18. Peter writes, It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Did you notice the two huge themes that Peter places side by side in these short verses? There is the sovereignty of God 
and the suffering of God. I realize that these are two massive subjects for one short sermon, and I must freely confess to you today that I don't have everything clear in my own mind on this subject, which is never a good thing. However, given the subject matter, if you have to wait until I understand the sovereignty of God completely, you'll probably be waiting forever. I think it was St. Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa in 300 AD, who said when speaking about the Trinity, we speak not because we fully understand, but in order for us not to say nothing. That's my desire too. I'm not addressing this because I understand it fully, but because as I read scripture, I see a very important and yet often overlooked theme that can give us great comfort and help and hope and encouragement when we are facing surgery, when our children go off the rails, when we face our final matric exams. And so to say nothing about this topic would deprive you and me of a very important tool when facing the doubts and fears and sorrow that come in times of suffering. Let's look at these themes briefly then, one at a time. Firstly, the sovereignty of God. Peter speaks about this in verse 17. The verse literally reads, It is better if wills the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. The question sometimes comes, does God will suffering and evil then? And the answer to that is, of course, no. God created a perfect world without sin and evil, and Adam and Eve and the rest of our sins have messed it up. And at that point, when sin entered the world, God had two choices. Either he could have wiped everything out and started all over again, or he could continue with us and in some inexplicable way work with us and our sin and our mess to eventually bring about something glorious. One writer puts it this way, Once human beings turned from God, there were only two alternatives, either immediate destruction or a path that led to redemption through great loss, grief and pain, not only for human beings, but for God himself. So Peter's point is not that God wills evil, but that suffering and evil are within his sovereign control. And we'll come back to that in a moment. The best way to look at God's sovereignty is to open the Bible and read what God's word has to say. And I'd like to do that today. We can't look at everything, but just a few passages that describe God's sovereignty. And I'll try and draw out some of the implications and applications of what the Bible says, which I really hope will encourage us and reassure us. Possibly the best definition of sovereignty that we get in the Bible is found in Job chapter 42, where Job says to God, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. In Psalm 135, the psalmist says, The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth. 
in the seas and all their depths. In Daniel chapter 4, even the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, some people use these verses as a club to beat people over the head with, but that's not what they are intended for. Remember when you were a child at home by yourself and you started to hear strange noises, or perhaps it started to rain and there was a bit of thunder and lightning. Remember the utter relief of finding out that your dad was back home. I think that that's what these verses want to say to us. Your father is home. There is nothing to fear. Let's look at a couple of examples of where God's sovereignty is seen. First, the Bible tells us that God is sovereign over all creation. This is something that has only struck me recently. This time of lockdown has forced me out into my garden a lot more than I would usually be, and I'm starting to get quite well acquainted with the birds and the flowers and the bees and the snails and the squirrels that I meet there most mornings. And it suddenly struck me recently that God is involved in each one of them individually. Maybe you're wiser than me and you've known this all along, I don't know. I've often understood and acknowledged that God created human beings individually, so often in counselling I have affirmed, you are handcrafted by God. God knit you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, as the psalmist says. In my mind, I also believe this about stars. I often quote Isaiah chapter 40, where God says, To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. But somehow I'd forgotten about the rest of creation. God handcrafted people and he handcrafted the stars, but then kind of left the rest of creation to get on with it. But listen to a few verses in this regard. Psalm 145 all creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. I don't feel too bad about spending time in my garden looking at birds and flowers because Jesus specifically told us to do so. Matthew chapter 6. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Jesus says, If the birds are fed, it is because your Father feeds them. If wild flowers grow, it is because God clothes the grass. And a little later on in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, 
are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care, without your father knowing and seeing and being there to catch it. But moving in even smaller to the subatomic level, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says about Jesus, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And the writer of the book of Hebrews says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. If Jesus were to remove his hand from our universe for a second, everything would cease to exist except God himself. And so I encourage you to spend a few minutes in your garden this afternoon just considering the beauty and the majesty and the awesome power and, quite frankly, the sense of humour of God in creation. Just a couple of more areas, really quickly. Second, God is sovereign over nations and history. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. Third, God is sovereign over our individual lives. Proverbs chapter 16, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. And fourth, God is sovereign over even the most seemingly insignificant details. Proverbs chapter 16 again, the lot, that's the ancient equivalent of dice, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God is sovereign over the flip of a coin. God reigns over everything. God is in control. God is sovereign. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul speaks about the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Now, I can imagine someone thinking, aha, I've always said so, whatever will be, will be. If God is in control, then it doesn't matter what I do at all. Not so fast. This brings us to the theme of human responsibility. While the Bible teaches that God is 100% sovereign, it also teaches that human beings are 100% responsible for their actions. This is another instance of the Bible holding two seemingly contradictory statements together at the same time, a bit like Jesus being fully God and fully man, or the Bible being a human document and yet at the same time the Word of God. But there are a number of places where the Bible puts these two ideas side by side. Let me mention just two of them. During the time of the prophet Isaiah, we read how God uses the nation of Assyria to punish his people, the Israelites. The Israelites have rejected God and worshipped other gods, and so God sends this foreign nation to invade Israel. So God is using them, but the Assyrians were a particularly cruel people. And so God says this in Isaiah chapter 10, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation, 
I dispatch him against the people who anger me to seize, loot, and snatch plunder, and to trample him down like mud in the streets. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. So here we have God using the nation of Assyria as if it were nothing more than a tool, an axe or a hammer. And yet at the same time, God holds them fully responsible for their actions. The most succinct statement in this regard comes from Jesus at the Last Supper, when he predicts that Judas is going to betray him. Speaking about himself, he says, The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. God is sovereign. Jesus' betrayal and death were predicted hundreds of years before they happened, and yet Judas is held completely responsible. We do need to hold on to a certain level of mystery here. You might say, well, I can't see how God can be completely sovereign and human beings completely responsible. But, you know, if God fills the universe whose size I can't possibly comprehend, billions of galaxies, each containing their billions of stars, why would I think that I can comprehend his ways? It stands to reason that an infinite God cannot be understood by a finite me. One writer uses the illustration of an ocean liner to describe God's sovereignty. The ocean liner leaves New York bound for Liverpool. On board are scores of passengers who are free to do as they want. They eat, sleep, play, lounge about on the deck, read, talk together as they please. But all the while, the great liner is carrying them steadily onward toward a predetermined port. I think it's a little more nuanced than that, though. It's not as if human beings are off over there doing their own thing, and yet God is taking them off somewhere else. Rather, their very actions are being used by God to bring about his purpose. And God even uses evil actions and the suffering that that brings. And we know that because of the cross of Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, Peter and the other disciples pray, and they say, Lord, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. See again God's sovereignty and human responsibility, even evil actions. Satan and all the forces of evil work against Jesus to try and destroy him, and yet in so doing, they bring about the very thing they're trying to avoid, the salvation of the world and their ultimate destruction. God's power is so great that he's able to use evil to defeat itself a little bit like a good judo fighter uses his opponent's own strength to defeat him. 
Think of Joseph in the Old Testament, who experienced years of abuse, hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused and imprisoned for decades. And yet at the end of the story, when Joseph is second in command of all Egypt and realizes that his position means that his family will be saved from famine, he says to his brothers, You intended this for evil, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The evil and indifferent actions of Joseph's brothers and the Ishmaelite slave traders and Potiphar's wife simply work together to accomplish God's plan to save his people from famine and to preserve a nation through whom will come the Lord Jesus, who will save all humanity from their sin. God is so sovereign over the affairs of men and women that he can even take evil and use it to his good purpose. So that Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This does, of course, leave us with all sorts of questions that we probably don't have time to answer, even if we could answer them. Again, this doesn't mean passivity on our side. I don't need to study for my biology exam because God knows the outcome already. I can do what I like. God is in control. No, God presents himself to us as a person, and so we can pray to him, argue with him, present reasons to him, intercede with him. God calls on me to pray and obey, and he uses my prayers and actions to bring about his will. But my disobedience, or not praying, won't frustrate his plan. Think of the words of Mordecai to Queen Esther when she's wondering about whether she really should try to save her people from genocide. He says, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. If I don't pray or act, I might suffer loss, but God's purposes won't be frustrated. If I pray for someone and my prayer doesn't work out quite the way I expect, that doesn't mean that I have failed and that this new outcome is somehow an inferior plan B. God is at work. Paul says we know that in all things God works, not that we see in all things God works. Sometimes we do see how God has worked things for good. You could probably look back on your own life and see how God has worked in things you would never have wished for. But many times we don't see. In many cases, we have no idea what God can be bringing about through a horrific situation. But we can be assured that he is, if we know and love him. And one day we will see it and worship a God who brings such beauty out of brokenness. All this is simply to say that it doesn't matter what we face this week. You can fail a maths exam. You can have open-heart surgery. You can discover that one of your children is getting a divorce, that one of your grandchildren has started taking drugs. All of that hurts, but we are perfectly safe in the hands of a God who is perfectly in control and is working and will work in even the darkest situations. 
The second great theme in these two verses that Peter puts right next to the sovereignty of God is the suffering of God. We've looked at this before, so this will be the shorter of the two points, but it is something equally important that we hold on to in times of suffering and sadness and despair. Have a look at verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all to bring you to God. As we saw last time, this verse parallels almost exactly what we read back in chapter 2. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you. Christ died. Christ suffered. The message of Christianity is that we have a God who loves us so much that even though we sinned and rebelled against him, even though we try to live in his world without any reference to him, he loves us and continually seeks us out and calls us to himself. He's doing that right now, today. And he doesn't sit up in heaven and ask us to reach up to him. Instead, he comes down, way down. He becomes a man. He lives in the mess that we have made. He experiences everything that we have ever experienced or will ever experience. He lives the perfect life that we should have lived. He dies the death we deserve to die for our sins. And in return for our sinful life, he offers us his perfect life. Christ died for sins once for all to bring you to God. But he died and he suffered. This is something that's unique to the Christian faith. In fact, it's a part of the Christian faith that is often most mocked and ridiculed. In the ancient world, crucifixion was reserved for the lowest class of people. A Roman citizen, by law, was not allowed to be crucified. He had to be beheaded. It was only in extreme cases of treason that a Roman citizen would be crucified. Crucifixion was reserved for slaves and foreigners and other non-persons. The idea that the Messiah could be killed was ridiculous. If you were killed, you couldn't be a Messiah. The idea that you could be God and hang on a cross was madness. Paul writes in the book of Corinthians and he says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. There's actually a piece of graffiti that has come down to us from Roman times from about 100 AD. You can probably Google it for yourself there is a figure of a man on a cross and the man has a head of a donkey and the inscription says, Alexamenos worships God. Whoever scratched these words and this image into the plaster is mocking someone called Alexamenos and anyone else who would worship God on the cross. It was inconceivable. It was inconceivable then and it's inconceivable today. The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche ridiculed the idea of God on a cross. But you know, in a world where two-year-olds are molested and killed, in a world where young married fathers with young children are killed by drunken drivers, in a world where little kids drown in pit toilets, I need a God who has suffered. As Pastor John Stott puts it, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? 
there is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Pastor Tim Keller puts it this way, Yes, we do not know the reason God allows evil and suffering to continue, or why it is so random. But now at least we know what the reason is not. It cannot be that he does not love us. It cannot be that he does not care. He is so committed to our ultimate happiness that he was willing to plunge into the greatest depths of suffering himself. He understands us. He has been there. And he assures us that he has a plan to eventually wipe away every tear. Someone might say, but that's only half an answer to the question why. Yes, but it is the half that we need. He goes on to mention a book by Anne Foskamp. The book is called uh, One Thousand Gifts. And in the book, Anne shares her journey to try and understand the seemingly senseless death of her sister, who was crushed to death by a truck at the age of two. And in the end, she concludes that it's a question of trust. Do we trust God's character? Is he really loving? Is he really just? And she writes this. God gave us Jesus. If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally owned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on the cracked lips? How will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best and right? He's already given us the incomprehensible. Our time is gone, but as we close, let me tell you a story I heard this past week about a man whose 15-year-old daughter lost her best friend, also 15 years old, to leukemia. She'd been a beautiful, athletic, fun-loving girl, and within a few weeks, she was lost to cancer. This was a Christian family, and they grieved well. They talked about it a great deal. They thought it through. And several months later, the father was walking down the hall and he heard his daughter weeping inside her room. And so he tapped on the door and walked in. Come on, tell me about it, he said. He wrapped her up in his arms and she burst into tears. And she said, Daddy, God could have saved my best friend, but he didn't. And I hate him. He stroked her hair and he said, I'm so glad you told me. There's no point pretending otherwise. God knows what you think before you think it. No point pretending that you think something else. I'm glad you're being honest with me. God knows what you think. You might as well tell him too. But before you become too convinced that God has it in for you, you have to keep asking yourself whether you want a God like the genie in Aladdin's lamp that you control. And you have to remember one other thing. God's love for you is finally to be measured, not by whether you always get your own way, but by the bloodiness of a little hill outside Jerusalem.
You lost your best friend. God lost his son. In fact, he didn't lose him. He gave him. And when the whole world comes crashing in and you have no other evidence anywhere that God loves you, you go back to Calvary again and again and again. And you hang on there because there is no greater evidence anywhere that God so loved the world. Amen.